What I thought I would do tonight is uh, take a little time to look at a psalm with you, Psalm 28. Uh, last week we finished up the book of Isaiah, and then in about two or three weeks we're going to start a study on Christians Get Depressed Too by David Murray. And so in the meantime, I thought we would look at a few psalms together. And tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm number 28. Psalm number 28. And this psalm is mainly a prayer. The first half of the psalm is a really a, an urgent prayer by the psalmist. And then the second part of the psalm is a praise and thanksgiving to God in response to the answer to that prayer. And so it's a prayer asked and answered in Psalm 28. The first couple of verses of the psalm really describe uh, the, the desperate emotional situation of the psalmist. And Psalm 28 is attributed to David. The title there says that it's a psalm of David. We don't know anything other than that. Some of the psalms give us some additional historical background, uh, a life setting, maybe for uh, the time when the psalm may have been written. But this psalm doesn't give us anything like that. It just says that it's attributed to David. And so when we think about David being in desperate situations in his life, there are probably a number of different scenarios we could point to, right? Uh, in the book of, in the books of first and second Samuel, uh, we could point to uh, the times early in his life before he became king, when he was constantly on the run and he was being hunted by uh, King Saul. And so there was that, that rivalry there between King Saul and, and David, who had been anointed to become king after Saul. It was kind of more of a one-way rivalry because David was, in, was not in competition with Saul, but Saul felt threatened by David. And so um, Saul was jealous and he was, um, had malice in his heart toward David and so wished all kind of ill will against David. So it, it could be a situation like that where David is on the run. Um, it could be when he's king and we have different times during his kingship when there were people who were against him. Uh, probably the, the most prominent one is when his own son Absalom uh, betrayed him and tried to take over the throne. But there were many different situations in David's life. Some have even suggested that um, this could even be a situation of illness in which David is crying out to the Lord. And that's possible, although uh, it does, there does seem to indicate in this psalm that there are some enemies that, that David is, is dealing with, especially in verses 3 and 4. And so, uh, but we don't know the situation exactly. And I think many of the psalms are designed like that so that we can more easily apply them to our situations. So we can think about many different times in our lives when we would be in a situation where we would need to offer a desperate prayer to God. It could be an illness. It could be uh, finding out that we have something very serious going on with us or a loved one. Uh, it could be a time of financial uncertainty, maybe laid off from a job, um, looking for a job and you can't find one. Uh, could be a time in which just one of those times where it seems like there's just a bunch of things going wrong all at once, kind of like the dominoes keep falling. 
many times in our lives where we cry out to God in desperate situations. And that's what, that's what we see in verses 1 and 2. The psalmist says, To you, Lord, I call. You are my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear to me. For if you remain silent, I will be like those who go down to the pit. It's a desperate plea, isn't it? Uh, first of all, he's crying out to the Lord. He says, to you, Lord, I call. And the word order of that, I think, is intentional because it puts the Lord front and center of his prayer. And that reminds us that uh, we have no other place to turn to, do we? Uh, he is the one to whom we should be turning, and he is the only one who can bring deliverance. And so rightfully so, he is front and center in terms of the, the prayer of this psalmist. To you, Lord, I call. So it's the Lord to the Lord that we should run. And that is, uh, we're given confidence that the Lord is the one to whom we should run to when the psalm describes him as our rock. To you, Lord, I call. You are my rock. This is this word for the Lord, this metaphor of God as a rock. You'll find it all the way throughout scripture. You can see it back in the Pentateuch in Exodus and Deuteronomy with Moses. You see it all through the Psalms. You see it in the prophets. And probably the, the reason why the Lord is referred to with this metaphor is because of just the idea of strength, of security, of uh, not just a, a small rock, something you can throw, but more like a rock that you would build on. That's something that would provide a sure foundation, something that's unmovable. That's the image. The Lord is secure. He is strong. He is unbreakable. He is unmovable. And so he is someone to whom we can call on and someone in whom we can trust because he is a rock. But then the psalmist cries out. He says, do not turn a deaf ear to me. For if you remain silent, I will be like those who go down to the pit. Could the Lord not hear the prayer of David? I don't, I don't think that's necessarily uh, what David has in mind here. I think this is very just uh, emotional type language. Uh, Lord, please don't turn a deaf ear to me. Uh, open your ears, please. I need you to hear me. And you can see the desperateness of the situation when he says, Lord, if you remain silent, I will be like those who go down to the pit. One way of understanding the pit is as a metaphor for death. That, Lord, if you don't intervene, if you don't hear me, if you don't come to my rescue, I'm going to die. And there's every indication in the psalm that, that he means that, that it's that desperate of a situation. And so he is in greatly in need of the Lord to hear him. And so in verse 2, he says, hear my cry for mercy. As I call to you for help, as I lift up my hands toward your most holy place, hear my cry for mercy. Mercy is undeserved, isn't it? Mercy is when you take pity on someone who is in a desperate situation and you lend them aid, you give them help, even if they're not worthy of that help. That's what David is calling on from the Lord. Lord, I'm in a desperate situation and I need your help as I lift up my hands toward your most holy place. And there are many places in scripture where we see uh, different 
um, body language used in association with prayer. Sometimes we see people standing in prayer. Sometimes we see people kneeling in prayer. Sometimes we see people flat on their face before God in prayer. Oftentimes we see this body language of lifting up the hands to the Lord. And it probably communicates the image of uh, open hands uh, pleading to be filled. Lord, I need you. I need your help. I need your rescue and openness of hands uh, in preparation, in, in anticipation of the Lord answering and filling those hands with his blessing. But he lifts up his hands and notice he says toward your most holy place which is a specific reference to the Holy of Holies in the temple. Or in David's case, it would have been the tabernacle. So this most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant would be found. He says, I lift up my hands toward that place. Why would he lift up his hands toward that place? Because that's where God was. Yes, there's a sense in which God is everywhere, right? God's everywhere. He, you can't contain God anywhere in the universe. But there's a special special sense in which in the Old Testament, his tabernacle, his temple was the place where God's glory came to rest. We just saw that last Sunday night in Exodus 40 when Moses finished the tabernacle and he set it up and God's glory came to rest in that place. Uh, we see in 1 Kings chapter 8, when uh, Solomon is dedicating the finished constructed temple that he says, Lord, if we're ever away from this place and we pray to you, if we cry out to you, then may we look toward your holy temple as we cry out to you. And so it was common in the Old Testament scriptures that wherever you were, your compass, your spiritual compass, if you will, was centered not on north, but on wherever the, the ark of God was, wherever the holy of holies was. So if you were west, you faced east to, to put your hands toward the holy place. Wherever the ark of God was, that's where you raise your hands to pray to, because that's where God's presence was associated. So he's crying out to God in a desperate prayer. He needs God's help, and without him, he'll be ruined. Possibly even he will die. And so it, there's a desperate prayer for help. And then in verses 3 through 5, we see as a part of the prayer, the psalmist asking God to, to be just, to be righteous. And this primarily has to do with David not wanting to have the same fate as that of the wicked. For, for David, for the Old Testament saints, uh, for the righteous and the wicked to have the same fate was unthinkable. That, that, that can't happen. There, there can't be the same fate. And so David is crying out to God that he would not be consigned to that same fate as the wicked. And he's crying out for God to be just, to be righteous. And so he says in verse 3, do not drag me away with the wicked. With those who do evil, who speak cordially with their neighbors, but harbor malice in their hearts. So clearly there has to be, according to Psalm 1, Psalm 1 kind of sets the stage for the whole book of Psalms, right? Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the ungodly, in the counsel of the wicked. 
Blessed are those who delight in the Lord, in his law. And so there's two different paths. And in Psalm 1, there's two different destinies, isn't there? The one who delights in the Lord, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. But those who pursue the way of the wicked, they shall not prosper. They're like chaff and they blow away. So two different paths, two different destinies. That's the mindset of David when he says, Lord, don't drag me away with the wicked. Instead, plant me like a tree by the rivers of water. Don't drag me away with the wicked, with those who do evil. And notice the, the example that he gives. Who speak cordially with their neighbors, but harbor malice in their hearts. We would never do that, would we? This is a temptation for all of us, isn't it? To, um, to be friendly on the outside, but to be mean-spirited on the inside. It's a temptation for all of us. And what David is pointing to here is um, a kind of deception in which someone has ill will towards someone, but they're covering it up with um, a front of kindness. But in their hearts is true evil. And so David says, Lord, repay them for their deeds, for their evil work. Repay them for what their hands have done and bring back on them what they deserve. Now, is this just David being vengeful? Some would want to read it that way. But I think a better way to read it is to read it theologically in the context of the Psalms, in the context of the Old Testament. And that is that David is not being personally vengeful here. What David is concerned about is God's holiness and God's justice. So he's saying, God, be who you are, is really what he's saying. God, be who you are. Be the just and the righteous God that you are and apply the justice that these people deserve according to what they've done. Verse 5, he says, because they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord and what his hands have done, he will tear them down and never build them up. Again, So verse 5 is a little different than verses 3 and 4, isn't it? Verses 3 and 4 is more like a plea. God, please be just. Please deal with uh, the wicked as your justice requires. But then verse 5 is more like an affirmation that God will do that. So verses 3 and 4, God, please act justly. Verse 5, Lord, I know that you will act justly. I know that you will do what's right and you will treat the wicked as they deserve. So verses 1 through 5 is a, really a prayer for God to answer. Please, Lord, answer and, and come to my rescue. And then the rest of the psalm focuses on the answer to that prayer. And so we see in verses 6 and 7 a desperate prayer that is answered. The Lord comes through. The Lord's ears were open to the psalmist's cry. And his answer has come. Verse 6 says, Praise be to the Lord, for he has heard my cry for mercy. That's exactly what he said back in verse 2. Verse 2 said, Lord, hear my cry for mercy. In the exact same words, verse 6 says, He has heard my cry for mercy. So in exactly what he was praying for, the Lord answered. The Lord delivered. He has heard his cry. In verse 7, he says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. 
My heart trusts in him and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy and with my song, I praise him. And I think that corresponds to when David called the Lord his rock. The Lord his rock earlier in the psalm, he says now that he says the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and my and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy and with my song, I praise him. I think two responses that this psalm gives to the Lord's answer of prayer is this. One is praise. And the second is trust. So in response to the Lord hearing his prayer and delivering him, there are two main responses. One is praise. He says, Lord, I thank you. I praise you. I'm going to sing with joy because of what you've done. And the second response is trust. Lord, I trust you. You are my strength and my shield. I will go on trusting you. Praise and trust. And so the Lord answered his prayer. And then the psalm closes in verses 8 and 9 with really uh, the psalmist desiring to take the blessings of the Lord that he has received and to spread them abroad to all the Lord's people. So most of Psalm 28 is individual, an individual prayer, an individual uh, thanksgiving to the Lord for the answer to that prayer. But then in verses 8 and 9, he wants to take that and spread it out to the rest of the community of God's people. So in verse 8, he says, The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. In verse 7, he said, The Lord is my strength and my shield. Now in verse 8, he says, The Lord is the strength of his people. So he wants to take what the Lord has done for him, and he wants to affirm that for all of the Lord's people. The Lord is their rock. The Lord is their strength, their shield. And notice he says in verse 8, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. Probably in verse 8, the anointed one is David himself. Because David was the anointed one of God, wasn't he? Whether you're talking about um, before his kingship or after he had become king, he was anointed by God to be king, by Samuel, by the prophet. And then each of God's kings following in the line of David could rightfully be considered to be an anointed one of God. So David was God's anointed one. Solomon was God's anointed one. Rehoboam was God's anointed one in the following in the line of David and Solomon. You can trace that all the way through. And ultimately that anointed one, the last one to be anointed is the son of David the root of Jesse, the one who comes from that line, who is the, capital T-H-E, the anointed one, the Messiah. The Hebrew word for anointed one is Messiah, Mashiach. And so it can refer to these different individuals along the way in the line, but ultimately it was all pointing toward something greater, wasn't it? that at the end, the culmination of it all would be the Lord Jesus as God's anointed one. And what the psalmist is saying in verse 8 is that God will never forsake his anointed one. God will always be the strength and the salvation of his anointed one. And then in verse 9, he says, 
really as a, as a, a prayer, a petition. So the psalm kind of begins with a prayer and ends with a prayer. He says, save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. So what the psalmist wants to do is he wants to take the individual blessings that God has showered on him. And now he is wanting God to bless all of his people. Lord, bless them, save your people, be their shepherd and carry them forever. That's the right response to grace, isn't it? When we have been shown grace, the right response is to wish that same grace for others. Do you remember that parable that Jesus told? I believe it's in Matthew chapter 18. The parable when uh, the man had owed tons and tons of money and the, the master forgave him. But then he goes out and finds one of his fellow workers who, old, who owed him just a little bit of money and he beats him up and hands him over. And so the, the owner, the master calls him back and said, what are you doing? Didn't I forgive you this huge debt? Shouldn't you have also forgiven your brother, your fellow co-laborer? And that's the lesson that Jesus wanted us to learn is that when we've been shown tremendous grace, it is upon us to show grace to others as well. And to desire that same grace for others. And that's what the psalmist is doing in verse 9. Lord, you have blessed me. Bless all of your people. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. And the idea of a shepherd is multiple, isn't it? Multiple pictures come to us from the idea of a shepherd. Guidance, protection, uh, feeding, providing for. Really everything that that sheep needs that shepherd is there for. And he's asking the Lord to do that for his people, not just him, but for all of God's people. And I'm thankful that we do have a great shepherd, don't we? Who watches over us. He will not let us go. John 10, Jesus is the good shepherd. He says, no one is able to pluck them out of my hand. No one's able to pluck them out of my father's hand. I call my sheep. They know me. They follow me. I know them by name. No one can harm them. Why? Because Jesus is their great shepherd. He will accomplish for them everything that God has entrusted for Jesus to do for them. He will bring it to completion. And so I'm grateful that we have a God who is our rock. We have a God who is our shepherd. We have a God who is our strength and our shield. So the lesson of this psalm is really simple. Cry out to God. Because he's the only one who can help. He's the only one who can help. And this psalm teaches us that God will come to the aid of his people. He will be their shepherd. Now, just as a closing application, that doesn't necessarily always mean that the answer that God brings is exactly what we had in mind. Sometimes the answer that God brings looks very much different than what we asked for. But he's the shepherd, right? So there might be a sheep who says, I want to go over here because that grass looks really good. And that grass might be great, but the shepherd sees a wolf over there that the sheep didn't see. And so the shepherd's not going to let that sheep wander over there to that nice green grass because he knows ultimately it will be dangerous for him. He leads him over here where it will be safe.
our God sometimes doesn't always give us exactly what we want, everything that we set our eyes on, but he does give us what we need. And he does have in mind the best for his people as a good shepherd.